The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how. 24th March, 1703, a place far from the sea. She is awake, and I must remind myself of how it began. The end of all things. It was a time of witches. It was a time of saints. A time when rabbits hunted foxes, when children came into the world without their heads, and kings lost theirs on the scaffold. The world was turned upside down, or so some said. Weep, England, weep, the broadsheets cried. And the poets and the philosophers, fearing for their own necks, delayed their poems and philosophies or incarcerated them in Latin and impenetrable Greek to be exhumed at a more enlightened date. Now, less than a hundred years after men and magic began to drift apart, we walk a new earth. We have become reasonable and cleave to our certainties at once we cleave to our kings. Now, the buried stories are dismissed as old wives' tales, exaggerations, falsehoods, but still they bubble through the cracks, clinging on, refusing to go down into the dark. They develop strange qualities, words stored for too long. In the dim light of my small study, never bright enough now, I lay them down in honest black ink, but they are past their bloom. The candle wax runs low, but still they come, and my pen moves over the page as if of its own will. And a very warm welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Rosie Andrews was born and grew up in Liverpool. She studied history at Cambridge before becoming an English teacher. Today I'm talking to Rosie Andrews about her very first novel, The Leviathan. Rosie, it's hard to believe this is your first novel. The Leviathan is so polished. Surely something came before this. Um, it is. It's the first novel I've published. Um, it's not the first novel I've written. So I, I wrote a novel about a year before I sent the Leviathan off um, for submission to agents and publishers. Um, and it wasn't, I became convinced as I wrote it that it probably wasn't the novel. Um, and eventually that was popped into a bottom drawer. And before that, um, I wrote some short stories and had one or two of them progress in competitions and things like that. Um, but but really, I am relatively new to writing as a in any kind of a professional way. Um, but I was an English teacher before and I used to enjoy um, or hugely enjoy some of the creative writing challenges of that and teaching um, that as a as a skill. So I suppose it was honed a little bit during that time as well. A biblical monster, the work by Thomas Hobbes of the same name, John Milton, the author of Paradise Lost and a character in this book. What's the thread that, that connects this fantastic work of historical fiction with all yeah. of these things? To some extent, um, as I was writing The Leviathan, what I enjoyed was the ability to treat it as a kind of melting pot and put things I liked into it. But you can't just do that. You can't do that without some form of um, logic or kind of um, underlying connection. And for me, the 17th century primarily was a time of chaos where people were trying to work out firstly what the the nature of things was so the nature of good and evil the nature of god the nature of political society um the nature of art and all of those things kind of come together in this idea of a leviathan as a an agent of chaos 
um, where Milton, for example, um, when he wrote Paradise Lost, he, he wrote in a very interesting way about, um, well, he, I found his representation of Satan to be particularly interesting. He seemed to be asking similar types of questions. He had this evil entity that existed in the world. And yet he wrote about it with this very singular, unique kind of empathy, where he almost understood why that evil thing was there. And I felt that that was very similar to what I was doing with the novel, where I obviously included him in order to sort of reflect that theme. But it, it was a question about what things are innate to the world. Why do things behave in the way that they do? In that, and that question of good and evil was kind of central to that. So I thought that there was a thematic connection um, that I enjoyed exploiting when I wrote it. You're a student of history. Uh, are you also a student of the dark arts, uh, a maker of teachers, <laughs> poisons and potion, perhaps? Is there a, a particular avenue of research you pursued there? Yeah, I love um, the, the ideas inherent in, in witchcraft, in magic, in the supernatural. Whether or not I personally deploy the, those arts, I think I'll probably keep that to myself. Um, no, only joking. But I, I think it's theologically very interesting so when people had such strong faith in God um, such that being an atheist was a really strange kind of in the way that Thomas is a, he's questioning about God was a really strange thing they just didn't really understand what that what, what that was what it meant but what they did have was this extremely strong and real belief in supernatural force uh, the supernatural forces and what they thought witches were doing or, or to my understanding is they thought that witches were channeling it rather than witches held it within themselves. So in a way, anybody could be a witch. What they were doing was accessing those sort of dark forces that they really had no right to access. Um, and that to them was therefore heretical. It was a form of blasphemy. And it was also, um, you know, very gender uh, directed and very class directed. Um, and both as a working class writer and a woman, I find those things quite interesting to see the way that people were treated um, for doing things that were sometimes relatively mundane, you know, trying to survive, trying selling little spells or potions or good wishes or bad wishes um, just to, to try to get to the next winter, basically. And I, I find that all very interesting. Yes, it's very much a novel about survival, I suppose. And, and there you're talking about Esther or not Esther, as she becomes later in the novel. Um, and she is the sister, I don't want to give too much away here, but let's call her the sister, to your central character, Thomas Treadwater. And there's a very interesting moment in the novel where Thomas says of his father, I remembered his enthusiasm, his passion for all types of knowledge, and felt a twist of mortification of how little value I had placed upon it myself. But Thomas is, uh, as you portray him, an enlightened man, and as you say, perhaps even an atheist, but certainly a great observer of the world, and he questions everything he sees. Is this book also about the liberty of the mind, about natural rights, perhaps? Yeah, it is, I think, and I think that's a really good observation. So people at that time, they obviously they lived in a society that had some very strict rules about what you were allowed to say and not say. They lived in a society that had just gone through a fairly cataclysmic religious revolution and then was going through a war um, and a, a social revolution with the rise of middle class, um, almost power, middle class power base moving into parliament. And um, that therefore there were questions about divine right and the overthrowing of the authority of the king. Lots of different 
elements coming together that forced people to think in particular directions, but then also allowed them to start questioning those fundamentals and saying to themselves, what am I allowed to think for myself? What am I allowed? What are the limits of my rights compared to the rights of another person or the rights of a king, the rights of um, a, a soldier, etc., like Thomas? Um, and I thought that, you know, for me, that it all connects in with this idea of Thomas wanting to um, forge his own path. It's kind of coming of age story in a way. And then there are all of these pressures around him of what he is and is not allowed to do and what they, what is expected of him. Um, yeah, so I think that that's a, a reasonable interpretation. I suppose we have to talk about this idea of the Leviathan and how it manifests itself in the book. Now, this is a, a moment where we have to be careful that we don't introduce too many spoilers, but mm -hmm. what would you say about the way the Leviathan uh, makes its way into the story? You know, I've read lots of novels that have influenced me or have inspired me in the past. And one of the things that has always caught my imagination is that question of what is real and what is not real. Um, as a character moves through a story, where they've ruled certain things out or they've um, had certain beliefs and found those beliefs to be ill-founded. And I suppose for me, that is kind of the, the development of a character and the arc of a character, what lessons are they learning, is a really fruitful thing to explore. So the way that in this story, Thomas's expectations are inverted with regards to Leviathan, um, and I won't say too much more than that because I don't want to spoil the story for people. I think it's, I think it's really important. I think it's a, a big question about what he understands about the world. And in the end, when it's overturned, when that expectation is overturned, what does that do to him? How does that change him? So I hope that what the reader experiences is when they look at the two timelines of the story, the 1643 and the 1703, uh, what they see is a slightly different character who has seen something or known or understood something to be the case that previously he'd completely ruled out. Most of it's set in Norfolk, but I wondered, is Norfolk as bleak and terrible as you portray? <laughs> no, <laughs> um, parts of it are. <laughs> I really like Norfolk. It's such a beautiful county and it's so full of history. Um, it's actually the county that has the most surviving churches um, that exist in the UK, which is uh, wonderful for me because I really enjoy the architecture and the kind of feel of that. Um, but there's a reason for that and that it doesn't really have very many big cities or big roads. So when you drive through it, it's a kind of, it's almost like taking a bit of a step back in time. You have this fairly big, fairly um, low population place where it does have cities but, or towns, but not too many of them. Um, and yet there are these parts of it where you you drive through and you don't see anybody. I went there in January. It was very cold. It was really cold. Nobody was there. And that really fitted for me the objectives of the story that I wanted to write. I want to move on to the use of language. Uh, and the use of language in the Leviathan is it's really quite extraordinary. And you extend that attention to detail right down to the choice of font. Um, what were your models for uh, adopting this style of language and, and indeed the font? The publisher is completely responsible for that um, rather than 
me being responsible. Um, but it's brilliant, isn't it? It's very evocative of Hobbes. It's very evocative of the 17th century and the kind of political writings that you would come across at the time when print was quite new. Um, and I think it's actually from the 18th or maybe the 19th century. The, it was creative right at the end of the 17th century. There were times when I thought I was reading an original document. And that's really the kind of feel that I wanted to go for as a historical writer. So I have read lots of um, what I call contemporary historical fiction. So it's now, um, it's written now, but it's obviously representing the past. And I, I enjoy stories that are maybe more reflective of the needs of our modern society and the expectations of our modern society. I do like them. But when I write, I quite like to try to really position myself in that time and I like to think about how things would sound and feel as much as what would happen um, so the language was incredibly important to me um, and one of the the sources for that one of the um, the areas in which I I delved to try to get that right was um, original sources of political pamphlets and um, the Bible and, and just things that were written or translated during that time to try to get the diction right. And that's something that was enjoyable for me. I like reading those sorts of things and, and thinking about um, the nuances of language. I love the moment in books when uh, the reader has an inkling as to what or who you think it's all about. In this case, what the Leviathan is. Then your realisation changes again and then again. Some authors map it all out, some plot as they go. Which one are you? Oh, this is a really good question. Um, I am a, a mixture of both of those things. So I usually, when I write, know where I'm going. I usually know the end. And I usually well, should know the beginning or I wouldn't be able to start. Um, however, there are, when I write, I, I think of two things. I think, what does the protagonist see? So what are they, as they move through the story chronologically, what are they experiencing? What expectations does that give rise to? But then the second thing that you have to be in control of as a writer is what's really happening. And that drip feed of realisation or revelation that should come through a mystery is important to control because you, you don't want there to be too little in the way of revelation and you don't want there to be, it to be too early and you don't want it to be what the reader expected. So you have to control that feed. Um, and I find that it's quite a hard thing to do. So there does need to be mapping. But if you map too much, obviously, you can end up with something that's, you know, not as living as you want it to be. So somewhere in the middle is, is where I tend to come out. What well, works so beautifully. Sometimes I thought <laughs> it was a fable, an, an allegory, or just a good story. I love a good story. Um, so my, my first love will always be something that holds my attention with its events. Um, but the themes are always going to be incredibly important. Not all stories have to be resonant with the themes of um, today. But one of the things I think that underpins this novel is the idea of cyclical uh, change, things that happen again and again. We do live in an age of almost a slight resistance to established fact and consensus. And we live in a very divided, polarised age. Um, I can't imagine I wrote that without any, <laughs> any sort of subconscious awareness of that. Rosie, this is a fantastic story in, in every sense of the word. And thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to speak to you.
I've been talking to Rosie Andrews about her first book, The Leviathan. It's published by Raven Books, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxury Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxuryread.com.au to find out how.